The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Today's teaching text comes from Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. My name is Garrison, one of the pastors here. If you got a Bible, you can go Hebrews 4, what Jenny just read for us. We'll get there in just a little bit. Uh, Last week, we kicked off the year by starting what we're calling a vision uh, series where we're essentially breaking down who we are and who we want to be as a church. And if you spend any amount of time with us, you're very aware of what that is, and it's that we want to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with Him. And my job this week is to kick off the next two weeks uh, where we're going to be breaking down what we mean when we say that we're Jesus-centered. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father God, we are, we are thankful uh, to be able to gather um, in your presence and with your people. Um, we thank you uh, for the truth even that we've sung this morning, that we've been made alive in you, that you've wiped away our sin, that you call us your, your children, and yet you are also our, our friend. That you see us, you know us, you love us, and you've made relationship with you and reconciled relationships possible through your own death, Jesus. Be with us this morning, open our hearts, help us to learn and to grow and to love you more. In your name, amen. Martin Luther um, was a theologian responsible for starting the Reformation a couple hundred years ago. He was once rumored to have been approached by a church member who asked him, why do you always bring up the gospel? in every single one of your sermons. Why do you always preach the gospel? And I think his response is pretty wonderful. He said, uh, well, because week after week, you forget it. Because week after week, you walk in here looking like a people who don't believe the gospel. And until you look like, until you walk in looking like a people who are truly liberated by the truth of the gospel, I'm going to have to continue to preach it to you. Which just has to be the best response possible to that question. Like, could you imagine? If me or Tim every single week got up here and we just kind of looked around, we're like, you don't look like you get it yet. Guess we got to go Romans 8. Here we go. Here's the text. Later, uh, when he told this story to a group of clergy uh, or other ministers, he said, most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know the gospel well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. He's very fiery. Now, the point is, a, a lot of churches have a lot of different messages, things like politics, or self-help, or prosperity, or caring for the poor. But we, as a church, we have one message, and that's Jesus. That's the gospel. That, that's it. His life, his death, and his resurrection for us in our place. And we kind of want to be like the band that knows one song. Like, this is our song. You want us to, you're giving us a suggestion. We can't play it. We don't know the lyrics. We don't know the chords. This is what we're about. We want to be known for one thing, and that's Jesus. And we're going to preach it. We're going to push each other to live in light of the gospel each and every week. And that's ultimately what we mean when we say that we're Jesus-centered. It's that we know the one song. 
That's all we got. That's what we're about. Now, practically, there's a lot of ways that we could actually preach this week in, week out. There's a lot of ways that you could preach about being Jesus-centered, too. But I think one of the best ways that we can unpack this over the next two weeks are with these two categories. And that's one, that Jesus is our great high priest, and two, that Jesus is our king of kings. And that's how we'll go about it the next two weeks. For this morning, we're going to talk about Jesus as our great high priest. So if you got a Bible, you can go Hebrews 4. That's where we'll be hanging out most of the morning. Hebrews 4, verse 14. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. You can pause right there. If you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, it's a letter written to a predominantly Jewish church in uh, Jerusalem. And this church is struggling with uh, false teaching. And what's happening is they're mixing Jewish practices and the Old Testament law with Christian life. So the writer is pushing back on these false teachers and these false teachings with a ton of theological arguments. Like the book of Hebrews is a really heady book. A lot of big points. You'll see the the writer unpack things like Christ divine nature, how he's greater than angelic beings, what that means, how he's greater than Old Testament figures like Moses and Abraham, which was a huge deal to this audience. And what's uh, something important for us to note is this idea that all of the Old Testament points back to Jesus. You can really get a lot of that from the book of Hebrews, the things like the law. It points to Jesus. The leaders and the kings, they point to Jesus. The prophets, they all point to Jesus. And one of the lines that gets drawn is that Jesus is our great high priest, which it kind of sounds nice. Like you don't really need to know a lot. Just be like, that has good vibes. Like that feels good. Jesus is a great high priest. But by the way, what is a priest? What is a high priest? I, I'm not really sure. So in order to actually know what he's talking about, and this gets brought up a lot in Hebrews, we got to know a little bit about what priests were in the Old Testament. So we're going to just deep dive into the Old Testament, Exodus 28. You don't have to flip there. It'll be on the screen behind me. Exodus 28, verse 1. This is where priests come from. It says, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother. This is God speaking to Moses and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And then that's who they are. This is what they're called to from Leviticus 21. It says, They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy." They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. So we've got a lot to unpack. Um, a little bit of backstory. Um, in the early on in Scripture, God establishes a special relationship with this man named Abraham. And although you can trace the genealogy of the Israelites all the way back to Genesis one with Adam and Eve, it specifically starts with Abraham 
and his family sort of in the middle of Genesis. And all throughout uh, the last half of Genesis, or really the last, the bulk of Genesis, you sort of get the, the story of the first couple generations of Abraham's family. And by the time we get to Exodus, the family has grown to hundreds of thousands of people and they're enslaved in Egypt. So God actually steps in again and frees them from slavery in this miraculous way. You need to read the book of Exodus if you haven't. And after this, after he frees them from slavery, parts the Red Sea, right? He establishes a new special way of relating to his people, not just to Abraham, but the whole people. One of the first things he tells them to do is to build a tabernacle which was really just kind of a tent in the middle of this massive camp where he promised that his presence would dwell. He does this, and then he establishes the office of priest, which as we just read was hereditary. So it starts with Moses' brother Aaron, and then it passes from generation through his line. And what the priests were is they were essentially the spiritual leaders of Israel. Priests had to be whole, Physically, they, they were called to be whole, with, which meant, one, no physical defects, but also to be holy in their conduct. There were extensive laws that the priests had to, to follow in order to be priests and to worship God. They had to maintain a certain level of purity and cleanliness, very extensive. But a lot of the rules and the laws revolved around animal sacrifices, sacrificing animals. See, in the Jews' time, Um, And in the Jews in Jesus' time, and really for hundreds of years even before this, they believed, just like us, that they were sinful. They knew that they were fallen and guilty before a holy God. So what does God do? He establishes this extensive system of sacrifices. So what you'd have to do is you'd go to the temple and sacrifice an animal in order to be forgiven in order to be made right with God. Blood had to be shed in order to be forgiven because they knew that the penalty for sin was death, so they would kill animals. And throughout the year, the priests would help people make individual sacrifices in the temple every single day. So if you boil it down, what, what does a priest do? Well, one, they facilitate the sacrificial system. They help people make sacrifices to appease God. But two, they mediate They they pray for the people. They stand between a holy God and a sinful people praying for forgiveness and for mercy. Now, even among the priests, there was a special class of priests called the high priests. And the high priest was essentially just the head honcho. He was the supreme religious leader of the Israelites. And he followed all the same rules that the priest did with a little bit extra. And that's because of his main job. His main job was to offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. You're like, you're giving me so many details. What does that mean? All right, atonement, biblically, is is very simple, actually. It just means to make a wrong right, to make amends. You could put it this way. If If I lent you my car for the day and you wrecked it, you would need to atone. You'd need to make an atonement to me by buying me a new car. And we would not be cool until you did that. You need to atone. Thank you. That's how atonement worked in the Old Testament with these sacrifices. The Israelites had sinned against God, and something needed to be done to pay for it and make amends as they sinned, so they would make sacrifices. And the Israelites would do this multiple days, all throughout the week, for themselves individually, but one day a year, the whole nation would, uh, a sacrifice would be made for the whole nation, and that's what the high priest would do on the Day of Atonement. Here's how it's talked about in Exodus 30. It says, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. 
with the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Now, if you're like, you've given me so many details, well, just hang on, there's more, right? There's a really particular way that this goes down. So within the temple, there were three designated places for worship. I got a little slide for this. It looks terrible. I'm sorry. You know, online, there's a lot of them. None of them are helpful. They have like paragraphs attached to each thing. I didn't want to overwhelm you. All right, so there's the outer court. There's the holy place. And then there's the most holy place or the holy of holies. Uh, Outer court, that's where most people are making their sacrifices. If you're familiar with the New Testament, Jesus flipping over the tables, that's where it's happening. It's happening in the the courtyards. Uh, The the holy place, think of this as like a sanctuary. This is where people, uh, there's specific altars that I won't get into inside the holy place. And the holy of holies is altogether different. It's this small room, sort of the back of the most holy place, or of the holy place, where a thick curtain or a veil separated it from the rest of the temple. Not a door, a a veil. And inside of it, it held some of Israel's greatest relics. It had the Ark of the Covenant, which literally had the Ten Commandments inside of it, given to Moses by God. It had manna from heaven that God provided for his people as they wandered in the desert and had Aaron's staff, which if you've seen the movie, you know, into the Red Sea, amongst other miracles. On top of the ark was a special area called the mercy seat, which was seen as the throne of God. And while God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere, this location was seen as special because God literally tells Moses when he's setting up the tabernacle and then eventually gets to be the temple that he will dwell in this room, that this is where his presence will be, which is why it's separated by this veil. The curtain or the veil exists as a literal barrier between God and man. The holiness of God could not be accessed by anyone except for the high priest, and even by him, only one day a year. God cannot tolerate sin. That's why this exists. So this veil and the elaborate rituals had to be undertaken by the high priest as a reminder that man cannot easily access God. Anyone that would go into this chamber when they weren't supposed to, God would kill them. They would, they would drop dead, which is just worth noting. This isn't for this sermon. This is more so for next week. We'll get there. This is just a different type of God than I think we're, we normally think about. This is a holy God, a God set apart, a God that we probably don't think about this way, that demands to be taken more seriously than we actually do. And so we have this high priest. He enters the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. He has to do all this cleaning, extensive cleaning rituals. He has to put on special clothing. He burns incense so the smoke would actually distort his view of God because he couldn't get a direct view of God or he might die. Then he brings this sacrificial blood with him to make atonement for the sins. So the high priest would go in, he'd sprinkle the blood all throughout the room, and then he would get out of there. He was terrified. They would actually, scholars say, they would tie a rope around his waist or leg because the other priests were like, what if this dude dies? Like, what if he gets one little thing wrong? He's going to drop dead, and we're not going in there. We're not going in to get him. We're just going to have to drag him out of there with this rope. They were all afraid. They knew that sinful humans and a holy God do not mix Yet it was, it was his job once a day or once a year to go into the most holy place and to atone. So 
So all that, if I had to sum up what it meant to be a high priest, it's one, it's a man who is holy before God. And two, it's a man who enters into the presence of God to atone or to pay for the sins of the people. That's what a high priest is. However, with all of these extensive rituals and this extensive system, there was a problem. And that's that it was incomplete. It wasn't enough. The Israelites were not changing. Their hearts remained the same. It wasn't enough. It had to be repeated every year. Sacrifices had to be constantly made. The Israelites needed a new high priest. We did too. Which is exactly who Jesus came to be, according to Hebrews 4. The author of Hebrews actually gives us more detail about this in Hebrews 9. This is from verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by, me by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Skip to verse 26. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It says this better high priest, the perfect high priest, Jesus, enters into the Holy of Holies and he atones for us, not with the blood of animals, but with his own precious blood. See, all of the sacrificial system, all the animals that were slaughtered for forgiveness of sins, it was all foreshadowing. It was all pointing to this, to who was to come. These animals without blemish were pointing to the true sacrifice. God made flesh who opens up his veins and pours out his blood and becomes the perfect spotless lamb. And unlike the old system, this sacrifice will actually change you. It can change us. It says your conscience, conscience has been and can be purified. That, that your mind, your soul are being transformed to serve the living God. This is called sanctification. Animals can't do that. And it says, he did it once for all to put away sin forever. The sacrificial system is done away with. There's nothing else to be done. There's no work to be done. Your sin has been wiped away by his sacrifice there's no more holy of holies that have to be entered into. There's no veil that needs to be parted. Look at what Matthew 20 says, 27 says happens to the most holy place, to the veil. This is from verse 51. It says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It says right after Jesus dies on the cross, he breathes his last breath, he dies, and the curtain rips in half. The curtain that separated the presence of God from the people is torn open. 
The Israelites couldn't be near the presence of God because of their sin. But when Jesus goes to make his atonement, he deals with sin forever and makes a way for his people, the people he buys with his own blood, to be near God. The curtain tears. We're no longer separated, but reconciled by Jesus, adopted into his family. And now through God's spirit, we as God's people have full access to God's presence at all times. What? It's amazing news. Jesus is our great high priest, which means for us, one, he's our mediator. Just like the priests of old, Jesus goes into the presence of God and makes us right with him. Even to this day, he prays and pleads for us on our behalf. But he doesn't just mediate. He doesn't just mediate a sacrifice. He literally becomes the sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. He offers himself in our place. And for those in Christ, we're forgiven forever. No more needs to be done. And if that were the end of the story, that would be more than enough. But according to Hebrews, there's more. Look at verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So Jesus is our mediator, he's our sacrifice, and he's our friend. He's our friend. As Hebrews says, we have this high priest who's gone between us and God, paying the price for our sin, which would have been enough but he's also not cold and standoffish towards us. He's not just, I'm the perfect savior. It doesn't seem like your conscience is very clear yet. Can we speed that up? Why don't you have it together yet? Don't you know what I did for you? No, that's not him at all. It says this high priest is able to sympathize with us, that he's been tempted as we are in every way, yet without sin. Some of us, maybe you've read this before, it's kind of hard to connect with because there's just something human about whenever you know someone or perceive someone as being better than you or like more mature, maybe that's how you would say it. Maybe you'd think of them as like they're sheltered. But like we can't really connect. Oh, they could understand me too. So when it comes to these verses, we're like, he's perfect. There's no way he actually gets it. But that's not true. Jesus is perfect, and he understands temptation in our sinful hearts deeply. In fact, he knows the bends of your heart, your weaknesses, your sin better than you do. This is how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. The man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a shelter life, sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to t- temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. So it's actually because of his perfection that he knows exactly what you're going through in some ways better than you do. Because we're like the person that's laying down after five minutes. 
right? Jesus went through it perfectly. This is why it's so important that Jesus came to earth as a man, that he puts on actual flesh. He was tempted just as we were. He experienced temptation. He experienced grief and suffering and pain and rejection and the brokenness of the world. He had and has real emotions, just like us. He understands you perfectly. He knows exactly what you're going through, which means he's our perfect Savior. He did it perfectly. And he's our perfect friend, which has massive implications for us. Look back at verse 16. That's what the writer of Hebrews says we're supposed to do with this information. He says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to to help in the time of need. He says, because Jesus is your perfect Savior and friend, you go to Him. You run to Him. No longer are we separated by God from some type of curtain. Our high priest has made a way for us. We have access to God. We draw near to the throne with confidence, and we receive grace and mercy and power that can help us where we're at. And this will change your life. Why? Well, how many of us, when we're experiencing temptation or fear and worry, when we're ashamed, when we're grieving, how many of us default to self-sufficiency and self-reliance and believing that God doesn't actually care about you, which just fuels the other stuff, the self-reliance and the self-sufficiency? Our default is to avoid the throne of grace, to try to do it on our own to isolate, to try to be our own mediator, to try to save yourself, to work your way to God, to be a better person. None of this will work. It's exhausting. And Jesus says, I'm your savior. I'm your mediator. I'm praying for you. I sympathize with you. I'm your friend. Come to me and find mercy and grace that has the power to change your life, to help you. I love how Pastor Ligon Duncan says it. He says, Jesus can sympathize with all our weaknesses because he lived as a human being and experienced the things that we experience. According to John Owen, Christ's sympathy with us means three things. First of all, it means that he is concerned for us. Christ is concerned for us when we're hungry. He's concerned for us when we're in trouble. He's concerned for us when we're tempted. Secondly, Christ's sympathy with us means that he can relieve our suffering. He can provide for our daily needs. He can save us when we're in trouble. He can help us avoid engaging in sin. And thirdly, Christ's sympathy with us means that he can experience what we feel emotionally insofar as our emotions are not sinful. He rejoices with us when we rejoice for good and godly things, and he mourns with us when we mourn over the loss of good and godly things. Jesus is your perfect Savior and friend. Now, let me, let me get this on the ground for you, for us. Um, this is what we're talking about. This is a huge part of what we're talking about when we say that we're Jesus-centered. Like, this has massive implications for our lives. And we don't, it's not just something that we're like, oh, yeah, I, I believe that. It's not just a platitude. This is what we're going for. This is what we're calling each other to actually believe in and live in light of. Not to do life alone, not to be all about uh, self-relying on yourself and kind of going internal, but to go to God together. Because we have this great Savior and friend, we run to Him in our times of need. When we're lonely, we remember Jesus was lonely Himself. His friends and His disciples abandoned Him on the way to the cross. 
He sees you. He knows you. He's there and he's willing to help you. When we're anxious, Jesus understands. He was tempted with worry as well. He sweats blood in agony the night before the cross. He sees you. He knows you. He's there and he will help you when we're grieving. Jesus himself was called a man of sorrows. He weeps in his time on earth. He weeps over pain and sin and death. And he sees you and he knows he's there and he will help you. When you're tempted, sexual sin, anger, lying, whatever it is, Jesus himself was tempted by Satan face to face. It took a toll on him. It says the angels ministered to him afterwards. He knows He's there. He will help you. And when you're ashamed and feel like a failure, Jesus says, come to me. Let me clothe you in my righteousness. Let me clothe you in my blood, my sacrifice. I will help you. I'm there. He loves you. He cares for you. He's made a way for you, and he sympathizes with you in your weaknesses. I'll I'll end with this. Um, As we're unpacking what it means to be Jesus-centered, something that we all have to see is that Christianity is something unique. That if, if you're just coming around and trying to figure out, you know, the whole Jesus thing, um, or you're coming back to church and you're like, you've been out for a little bit and that's totally fine. You have something that you cannot miss and cannot think is that Christianity is just like all other world religions. It is not. It is not like any other philosophy because every other philosophy in world religion says, this is what you have to do to be a good person. This is what you have to do to make yourself right with God. you got to be the best version of yourself. Here's the task list. And you don't have any days off. you got to do it every single day. you got to wake up and be the best version of yourself and work your way to God. It's exhausting. And Christianity says, look at what God's done for you. Look what he's done. Every other religion says, this is how you get to God. And Christianity says, look at all that God has done to get to you to bring you into his family, to save you. And for the rest of this series, we're going to talk a lot about the things that we're called to, that we're called to as a church, that you're called to as a believer, all the practical things. We're called to show up, we're called to serve, we're called to confess, to give, to give of ourselves, to sacrifice, and all of those are good things. All of those are things that we need to do as a church to be a healthy community that actually makes an impact on our city. But you can't miss this. Else we just are doing the church thing that somehow gets twisted and turned into just a works-based faith. It starts and ends with this, that Jesus has made a way for you. And you have to remember that throughout all of it. It isn't just the starting point. It isn't just the, you know, the ABCs. It's the whole alphabet of Christianity is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in your place. With his death, he tears open this veil that separated us from God and makes a way for us. And that never changes. It never changes based on how good you were this week, how many prayers you prayed, how many verses you memorized, how many times you opened your Bible. None of it changes. In Christ, it's secured forever. There's no other sacrifices. There's nothing else to atone for. He's done it. And he says, come to me. I've made a way. I see you. I know you. I sympathize. I love you. Let me pray for us. Father God, we are thankful for the gospel. 
It's not something we can ever grow past. Let our hearts not grow cold to it, though. Let us be amazed by what you've done for us. Let us be amazed, Jesus, that you are a great high priest, that you're our savior, our mediator, our friend. God, we, we don't deserve it. Well, we thank you for it. Lord, we confess that so often we, we try to earn it ourselves and we don't trust you. We struggle to believe that you, you are who you say you are. We struggle to believe that you could really love us as we are with our weaknesses, with our sin. We want to clean ourselves up so bad and become lovable on our own. But Jesus, you clothe, you clothe us in your own righteousness. You make us lovable. Just as we are. God, thank you for your grace. Lord, as we are still in the couple, um, the first couple weeks of the year, Lord, let the reality of the gospel take root in our hearts, whether it be for the first time or the thousandth time. Stir us by the power of your spirit. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.